Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. As we continue our special series on Thanksgiving with Dr. John Newfeld, we'll turn our focus now to the reality of God's personal relationship with each one of us. So let's begin today's lesson called God Knows Me, which is taken from Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12. We are on this week when we have celebrated Thanksgiving, going to spend some time on reasons to give thanks to God. Traditionally, Thanksgiving is a call to thank God for the bounty which we have received from His hand. It's a good practice. But I've decided to contemplate the fact that God knows me. And I want to lead us to be thankful about that. Years ago, I had a conversation with a young Chinese man who had just arrived in Canada. He had been raised with the idea of state-sanctioned and state-approved doctrine of atheism. And he decided to go to church in Canada. And as he walked through the door of the church I was pastoring, the first thing he heard was the congregation singing the chorus, He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. This young man was overwhelmed at the very first experience of walking into church, and he began to weep. And before that service ended, he found himself on his knees and had surrendered his life to Christ. He had said, I was overwhelmed that the God whom I suspected really existed actually knew my name. I'm reading Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. You know, this psalm is a psalm of David. We have no indication at what time in his life the psalm was written, but in reality, the historical background of this psalm really is not a major issue here. The point of this psalm is rather simple. Lord, you know me. All of us know people. We have family and friends and acquaintances, and we know them with different degrees of knowing. When we say, I know Mary or Grace or Frank, we meet a wide variety of things. We can mean everything from I've heard of Mary, to Mary and I have met on numerous occasions, to Mary and I have become very close friends. Indeed, we've been friends from childhood. Each of these represent a kind of knowing, but not every kind of knowing demands intimate knowledge of the other. But all of human knowing is imperfect. You know, I've been married to the same woman for a great many years now, and I would say that I know Kathy well. I know her in a way I've never known anyone, and with the passing of years, I know what she loves and what she doesn't. But at some deep level, she will always remain a mystery to me. And there are things that she does or things that she might reveal that still surprise me. They remind me that there is a great deal about her that I cannot know. But that's basic to all human experience. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we know in part... But God knows us at a level that is unlike any knowing we have ever experienced. And because of that, David uses words that are familiar with us. 
Words like searching and discerning and acquainting himself. Those words are a part of how you and I come to know anyone. But for David, these words do not express a partial knowing. God, he says, is acquainted with all our ways, not a great deal of our ways, but he is also discerning of all of our thoughts, and he has searched out everything in me without leaving one area undiscovered. And this knowing of us has some implications. For one, it is impossible to hide things from God. Also, it's not possible to deceive God. You you can't fool him or pull a fast one on God. You can't bargain with God to your advantage. You and I have never surprised God. God alone understands what motivates all our actions, even when we aren't clear why we do what we do. God never stops watching us. God never stops observing us, never fails to take note of all things, whether those things are large or seemingly insignificant. He searches out everything, leaving nothing undiscovered or undetected. If we think about it, we might find such knowledge almost unbearable or even suffocating. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a young man. He was not a Christian and was struggling with the idea of God, slowly beginning to grasp what Christians were talking about when we talk about God. He told me that the more he thought about it, the more he hated God. I was astonished and asked him why, and he said, God never leaves me alone. He watches me. He never blinks. He never looks away. He's never distracted for a moment, and I find that terrifying. You know, I had to think about that. And then I remembered that Job said something very similar to that. I'm reading Job 7, 17 to 20. Job says, What is man that you make so much of him, and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me? nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit. If I sin, what do I do to you, O watcher of mankind? Indeed, some of us might be happier if God took no notice of some of the things that we are less than proud of, or at least if God had had forgotten about them. The fact that God knows us to the level David describes can be frightening. But David in Psalm 139 says he finds it pleasant, It is knowledge, he says, that is so outstanding that his mind can't even grasp all the implications. He is simply left in a vast sea of wonder and mystery and delight. So why is David so different than the young man I spoke of earlier? Or for that matter, Job in his painful misery? Is it simply that David is not rebelling against God as others are? Well, perhaps. Well, let's see as we study these first 12 verses whether we might be able to answer that question. Let's begin with verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. I notice that David speaks about this not as an ongoing activity, but as a completed task. God has already finished his search of David's life and is already completely aware of everything. In truth, David might surprise himself as he learns something new about himself But God is never surprised. I had a conversation with a man who was seeing a psychiatrist, and we were talking about his experience. He said, I'm learning that I've lied to myself about many things. You know, I'm I'm pretty sure we all do that, but God never learns that about us. He already knows that completely. Now to verse 2. David says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. He means here that God observes every physical action he takes. Every time I roll over in my bed when I sleep, God observes. Every time I stand up from my desk at work, God watches. 
He sees every coffee I consume and every action of my head, of my eyes, the the movements of my fingers and the shrug of my shoulders. No action, large or small, is left unobserved. Then the latter part of verse 2. You discern my thoughts from afar. Now here we move from observable actions to the secret things we think about that are left unsaid. All my contemplations, all my longings and revulsions, the attitudes and deep-seated fantasies that I have, my plans and distractions are carefully observed and analyzed by God. But why does David say that he observes these things from afar? Is God really far away? I think David means here that distance is never a factor in God's observation. For us, it is, but not for God. And then to verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. Having said that God knows my movements and my thoughts, David returns to the idea of actions. When David's on a journey and when he stops somewhere, perhaps for the night, God observes. But in verses 4 to 5, David now turns his attention from actions and thoughts to God's knowledge of future events. God knows every word that will ever be on David's tongue before it arrives there. And then he adds that God hems him in from behind and before, indicating that God observes actions already done and also actions not yet done, but will surely come to pass. There's a theological word to describe this. It's the word omniscience. It means that God knows everything that can be known. God never learns anything. He doesn't grow in knowledge and mature. He's never surprised by something. His knowledge is complete. And that's all fine and well, but some of us have difficulty with the idea that God's perfect knowledge includes events that have not yet occurred. You know, if that's so, they say, how can human beings have free will? But before we consider that thought, let's go forward and notice verse 16. There, David says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Whatever we make of this, the Bible makes plain that God has perfect knowledge of all future events before they occur. God knows not only my future decisions and actions and thoughts, he knows every single event down to meticulous details of all that will happen. More when we come back. When you think about the incredible reality of God's complete and vast knowledge, does it overwhelm you? God knows us in a way that we could never comprehend. He knows us better than even ourselves and the closest people in our own lives. Yet how is it that David actually delights in this fact? And what does it mean when we speak of God knowing the present and the future? Well, Dr. Neufeld addresses these questions when we come back. There has never been a more popular resource than our annual Bible reading calendar, and this year will be no exception. So our 2017 Bible scripture reading calendar entitled Defining Moments of Faith is now available. With a theme based on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, the calendar depicts and describes many of the most picturesque and relevant locations and introduces some of the most influential people. But the calendar's primary goal remains the same, to guide you through reading the Bible in a year using Dr. Neufeld's unique reading plan. So ask for your copy today, one free per household, by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 today. Quantities are limited, so don't delay. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Neufeld. (music) 
I have a friend who was at the G8 Leaders Summit in Kananaskis, Alberta, now a number of years ago. He told me that these leaders sit around a round table with microphones recording all their words. Seated behind each leader is a staff feeding them information. They include translators and people ready to make phone calls, people with access to information about policy and and past speeches, everything that is necessary for them to process what is happening around the table and contribute with meaning. No one just speaks off the cuff, he said. They speak out of a vast storehouse of reliable and tested information, a vast array of information we would find stunning. But God needs no such staff. Every bit of information is already immediately accessible to him. What God knows is staggering. Furthermore, God not only knows all that has occurred, including the sum total of all human thoughts, God has complete, down-to-the-detail knowledge of things that will happen. The biblical word that is often used is the word foreknowledge. But lest we think that this word means that there is a kind of fatalism around all that's going to happen, think again. Foreknowledge means so much more than simply knowledge of events before they occur. According to Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God tells the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. See, that sentence is fascinating. I had intimate understanding of all that you are before I created you. The word knowing implies an intimate, relational, personal knowing. Foreknowledge implies so much more than simply knowing what's going to happen before it does. It means intimate relationship with the events of the future and intimate involvement with them. You know, I wish I had time here to to explain why this is not fatalism at all, nor that our free choices don't matter, for they do matter. But let's not be distracted. See, all of this leads David to a conclusion. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I I cannot attain it, or I cannot even begin to get a handle on it, or get a grasp of just how significant this is, or all the implications of what this actually means. I'm staggered by the thought of it, and I'm delighted by the immensity of it. But why? Why does David find this delightful, and why did my friend I spoke of earlier reject this so profoundly? And the answer, according to verses 7 to 12, is that David never needs to fear that he will ever, at any moment, be out of God's presence. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? These, of course, are rhetorical questions. The answer is nowhere. And here's where we have another doctrine of God. God is omnipresent. That doesn't mean that God is earth and sky and sun and trees. No, God is not to be identified with the creation. God is other than the creation. But God is at all times present to the creation. That's why Paul in Acts 17.28 would say of God, in him we live and move and have our being. We have never been out of God's immediate presence ever. See, I wonder if you've ever gone to church and the worship leader says, Let's enter into God's presence. Now, technically, that's not right. You've never been out of God's presence. Whether you're a believer or an atheist, you are in his immediate presence when brushing your teeth in the morning as you're barely awake, as you are when your worship leader tells you to enter into his presence. But of course, your worship leader isn't really wrong. What he or she really means on Sunday morning is, let's become aware of God's presence. 
Let's focus our minds on the truth of the nearness of God. Let's allow ourselves to be overwhelmed that God is among us. And then to make that point, David says in verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. You know, Amos 9.2 says something very similar. He speaks of the rebels against the purposes of God. And there he says, if they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. He means that we cannot escape God's justice. Hell itself can be no hiding place from God. But David sees the omnipresence of God as a great blessing. In fact, even if he were to attempt in folly to try to escape God's presence, he then adds with a great deal of assurance in verse 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The point being that David is absolutely convinced that the God who knows his name will never let go of his hand. He knows me. He will not desert me. Let me try to explain the vastness and grandeur of this thing. You know, our solar system, as, as you know, is vast. It consists of our sun, which is a medium-sized star, and then the nine planets that circle around it. We are but the third of those nine planets, and it turns out that our planet is relatively small. But our solar system doesn't exist on its own. It's a part of a galaxy called the Milky Way. Our solar system is situated on the outer region of this galaxy. We can see it as the vast array of stars in the dark and clear night sky. This galaxy is made up of 400 billion solar systems, of which we are only one. The entire Milky Way has a diameter of about 100,000 light years. Our galaxy belongs to a group of galaxies of three large and 30 small galaxies. How many other galaxies are there in the universe? Well, no one can say, but we do know that there are billions and billions of them. How vast is this thing that God has created? You know, our imagination simply cannot grasp the thing, and yet, God not only created it and not only inhabits it, but the God who is present to Alpha Centauri knows my name and never lets go of my hand. And then says David in verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be dark, even the night is as bright as day. You know, I was driving my car some time ago when I noticed out of the corner of my eye on an off-ramp, a motorcyclist going down. His bike went in one direction, and he tumbled into the curb. You know, I quickly stopped my car and ran to him, and I found to my relief, he was just fine. He said to me, did you see that car over there that hit me and drove away? Well, I didn't see it. I was looking straight up the road and not down the off-ramp. I couldn't actually help him. I know he wasn't satisfied with my answer, but in fact, my vision is always limited. I can't see behind me. I can't see around mountains. I can't see through the darkness. And sometimes I'm distracted and miss things that happen right in front of my eyes. It's true. Ask my wife. But God's eye sees in all directions, in all dimensions, through all obstacles at all times. And David, who will later in this psalm speak of those who speak against him with malicious intent, wouldn't have understood the despairing cry of the words recorded in Isaiah 40, verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. 
David knows such a scenario is simply not possible. God has never stopped observing him, carefully noting his thoughts, his actions, the things done to him, and holding his hand and guiding him through a certain future. For the God who knows him intimately will safely guard him through trouble and persecution and hard times and good times. God will never be distracted from holding him with full and complete and undistracted attention. You know, is this good news? I think it is. I think it is if your hope is found in God. I think it is when we are discouraged and might be tempted to think no one knows and and no one cares. I think it is to everyone who trusts in his or her God to care for him or her. And so at Thanksgiving, when I think of God's bountiful care, I am most thankful of something else. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my actions and my thoughts and my future. And even though many of the things that I do are are tainted with sin and unrighteousness, I will always run to you knowing of your grace, and you will never let go of my hand. He knows my name. Hallelujah. John, this was a great message, but somewhat intimidating. The very thought that God knows everything about me is a bit frightening as I look back on my past. But how do we get over that? How do we, how do we embrace it like David did? Yeah, I know that uh, some of us want these moments where we're private, and this would seem to indicate we've never had a private moment. And in fact, that's what Job says. I mean, why don't you ever allow me to be alone just long enough for me to swallow my spit? I mean, that's what's behind that. And yet I think that if we imagine this to be true and at the same time see that the God who exists and who knows us is also a merciful and loving God who looks to reconcile us to himself, uh, we might find this to be very comforting. And then also, when it seems like nobody notices our plight, uh, we can always say, God, you've noticed my plight. You've never taken your eyes off me. So I'm comfortable in this, that the God who knows is also the merciful God. Otherwise, I could not be. Well, in looking at one of the most well-known psalms in the Bible, we've gotten a great sense of God's omniscience and omnipresence. It's an amazing thing to ponder the depth and the scope of the God who knows everything about us and the world. David had a profound grasp of this, and it filled him with worship, awe, and delight. I hope that this message has encouraged you today, and that it will cause you to be ever thankful for the God who knows us intimately. Don't miss the program tomorrow where Dr. Neufeld continues to unpack this wonderful psalm as we learn about how God cares for us. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? These are questions that live in the minds of many young adult Christians in our culture. Dr. John Newfeld said, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they're asking about gender identity. We're responding to that need by hosting InDoubt's first InDoubt Live event about sexual identity. InDoubt Live will include speakers Dr. John Newfeld, leader of Ethos Ministry, Pastor Dave Johnson, InDoubt's own ministry leader, Isaac Dagno, and Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada. And the evening will also include an open panel forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. 
So if you're a young adult or part of a young adult Christian group, join us for In Doubt Live Sexual Identity happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clova Theatre in Surrey, British Columbia. In Doubt Live is free and you can discover all the details at live.indoubt.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And if you're not in the area, join us on In Doubt's Facebook page, Live.